Today's episode is brought to you by Stream by AlphaSense, an expert interview transcript library that integrates AI-generated call summaries and NLP search technology so their clients can quickly pinpoint the most critical insights. Start your free trial at www.streamrg.co backslash PMC. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G.co slash PMC. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. Thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. Be sure to subscribe to our recently launched Substack, the Planet Microcap Newsletter, for free at microcapnewsletter.substack.com. I'll be sharing all recent podcast episodes from Planet Microcap and the Due Diligence series. Plus, every Sunday, I put out our weekly microcap wrap to show how the microcap space is performed every week compared to the broader markets based on data from the Planet Microcap Index. Again, to subscribe, go to the microcapnewsletter.substack.com. For this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Rick Carew full-time investor, as well as visiting lecturer at the McIntyre School of Commerce at the University of Virginia and former reporter and editor at the Wall Street Journal covering Asia finance. I recently met Rick via Twitter when chatting about one of the recent due diligence episodes. And after learning more about his background and expertise, uh, I mean, we had to do an episode. At the University of Virginia, Rick has taught a course titled, and I quote here, The Global Digital Divide, Big Tech in a Multipolar World. And this explores how executives and policymakers are grappling with the rise of big tech across the globe with a particular emphasis on Silicon Valley and China's tech ecosystems. Considering all the news around China, technology, and as we discuss on the show, the implications of Chinese leader Xi Jinping's imminent re-election for a third term, I thought the timing was perfect to have Rick on to chat about all of these topics. And as a bonus, we also get into Rick's approach to microcap investing, his opinion on why investing in microcaps can generate outsized returns, and of course, why investors should be highly skeptical of US-listed microcaps with operations in China. Thank you again for tuning in to episode 238 of the Planet Microcap podcast, and please enjoy my conversation with Rick Carew. This episode is brought to you by Stream by AlphaSets. You can find them at streamrg.co backslash PMC. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G dot co backslash PMC. Stream is an expert interview transcript library that is starting to become an integral part to investors' research process. They have a number of interviews on a wide variety of companies, including TMT, consumers, industrials, real estate, and more. Stream provides over 300 expert interviews per week, and 70% of their experts are found exclusively on Stream. 
Stream is unlike any other transcript libraries. Stream integrates AI-generated call summaries and NLP search technology so their clients can quickly pinpoint the most critical insights. Stream's community of experts and thought leaders partner with Stream to build their professional brands and expand their industry influence. Right now, there are approximately 8,500 plus call transcripts available. For more information, please visit www.streamrg.co backslash PMC. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G.co backslash PMC. Welcome back, everyone, to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. You can follow me on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And joining me today is someone who I've, I've met relatively recently when we were, you know, I was going out there asking for questions on uh, for, for some upcoming guests. And we got to talking and, and I had to have him on based on his background. And you'll hear why in a second. So joining me today, I have Rick Carew. He is a visiting lecturer at the McIntyre School of Commerce at the University of Virginia, as well as a former reporter and editor at the Wall Street Journal covering Asia finance, as well as a full-time microcap investor, you know, in his spare time. Um, so, Rick, thank you for joining me. Professor Carew, how are you doing today? Well, I'm, I'm doing great. And thank you so much uh, for inviting me, Bobby. I'm really excited to be with you. Um, generally, my courses and public lectures are on either global technology policy or Chinese finance. So it's a little bit of a break from precedent for me to speak about my personal investing approach uh, today. But uh, I'm a huge fan of people like yourself uh, who work on building community and create social capital. So I just I couldn't turn it down. Uh, I appreciate that, man. Thank you. So, well, listen, if, if you don't mind, we will cover some of the other stuff, too. You know, obviously, we want to get your personal investing journey and get all that. But I mean, hey. With everything going on and and and, and global globally, I mean, uh, I have to get your insights on you know on what's going on. But but first, you know, let, let's start off with your background, your personal journey. You know, how, how did how did you get passionate about investing and finance? Where sure, did that come from? sure. Happy to happy to go into that. Um, and I should just say at the outset that everything that I speak about today is a reflection of my own personal views and doesn't represent. Uh, the views or opinions of the University of Virginia or the McIntyre School of Commerce where I teach. So just get that out of the way. Um, so in terms of my, uh, to answer your question, in terms of my personal journey, uh, I grew up in, in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, I went to University of Virginia and studied economics and Chinese language. Uh, my focus in my undergraduate studies was really on development economics. Uh, you can imagine I had an interest in emerging markets and what was happening in China. And my kind of goal initially was to really answer the question of how countries get rich, not how do I get rich. And so after graduating from, from UVA, uh, I moved into financial journalism, working for the Wall Street Journal as a reporter in Beijing, uh, and then a little bit later moving to Hong Kong, where I covered uh, mergers and acquisitions and private equity. Uh, just a really wonderful experience to get to meet some of the really uh, brilliant and well-connected investors who were focused on on China. And while I was there, uh, I was there, you know, right uh, on the on the kind of verge of the global financial crisis, and um, had a chance to meet Bruce Greenwald, uh, who I'm sure you're familiar with, and a lot of listeners are familiar with. Uh, brilliant economist, uh, value investor, and teacher at Columbia Business School. 
And I had a chance to interview him um, and just thought he was a terrific, wonderful, intelligent person. Uh, he ran the Helbrin Center and the Value Investing Program at Columbia and uh, just really enthralled with listening to him and his thoughts. And could it have been any more timely to listen to a brilliant value investor, you know, at a time when Lehman Brothers was uh, going bankrupt and uh, everybody was trying to figure out whether the financial system was going to remain intact. Um, so that led me to go to Columbia Business School, where I studied with him after reading his books. And um, while I was there, I took Joel Greenblatt's uh, Special Situations course, which I'm sure a lot of listeners are also familiar with. Um, that gave me a chance to start to study situations uh, like spinoffs and other off-the-run uh, stock investment ideas. And that, of course, led me to looking at microcaps uh, because microcaps are you know, what I consider to be probably the most fertile hunting ground for, uh, for investments if you're interested in anything that's unusual and the special situations world. So as you mentioned at the introduction, you know, I invest for my personal account and then uh, spend my uh, time teaching uh, global technology policy and China technology issues uh, to undergraduate students here at UVA who are part of the undergraduate business school at the McIntyre School of Commerce. Absolutely. And thank you for your full background right there. And we're we're going to go into all those rabbit holes. But, you know, first, I, I have to know, you know, what inspired you to want to take Chinese language course and really get into understanding, you know, why countries get rich? Sure. So um, I was very fortunate uh, growing up in Richmond, Virginia. We have a magnet school here called Maggie Walker Governor's School for Government and International Studies. And so as part of that, um, I had the opportunity to study both Japanese and Chinese language uh, in high school, which uh, a lot of people don't have that opportunity. And so I had to jump at it. And I think um, another kind of turning point for me was when I was a second year student at UVA, I had an opportunity to study abroad in Shanghai. And you know, Shanghai in 2002 was right after the WTO entrance uh, by China and just an amazing place to learn about economic development. I mean, you look at the skyline and it was just uh, crane after crane and the country was changing and becoming a part of the global economy. And for me, as somebody who's interested in economics, it was the most exciting place to, uh, to be in the world and encouraged me to keep studying, keep studying Chinese. Absolutely. And so then when you were looking at getting into financial journalism, we're going to go there first and then we'll come back to microcapital. So when you were going into your <clears throat> into financial journalism, I mean, were you recruited? I mean, how how often do you get somebody that was, you know, born and bred in the US, speaks now, you know, learned and now speaks fluent? I'm Mandarin, you speak fluent. Yeah. You know, right. and also was interested in global economics. I mean, how did I mean, the Wall Street Journal must have been licking their chops. Like, oh, this is great. Yeah, come on in. Well, certainly, uh, it was a it was a good environment. Uh, there's a lot of a lot of demand for Chinese speakers uh, among the international papers. I actually was really fortunate. I hadn't studied journalism at that point, and a professor of mine at UVA uh, happened to give me an introduction to a local Chinese newspaper uh, magazine, and uh, connected with them. And I spent. Uh, nine months working with them as an unpaid intern. And while I was there, I happened to break a, a big story that ended up um, being covered by the Wall Street Journal after we had already broken the story. 
And so after that, I got a chance to meet different folks who were interested in how we how we figured that one out and um, ended up being becoming the banking reporter for the journal pretty quickly thereafter. Absolutely. I mean, can you, what was the story? So a uh, great story, actually. Um, this was right when all of the big Chinese state banks were doing their IPOs and uh, attracting foreign investors. Um, the story was about the chairman of China Construction Bank, which was the first Chinese bank to go for an IPO. Um, and he, the chairman of the bank, uh, uh, had been caught um, accepting bribes from an IT contractor on the Pebble Beach golf course and uh, in California, your, your home state. And, um, and we were able to find a lawsuit that had been filed in U.S. courts. I'd, I'd done an internship with a law firm uh, during high school uh, and university. Um, and so I knew how to use Pacer, a uh, great, great resource for anybody who's interested in studying litigation. Um, and so we were able to dig up that documentation and um, wrote a story based on it. And all of the international media followed us on that. So great, um, a great case study in the power of doing research in the legal legal world to, to uh, understand investment situations. Absolutely. I mean, during that, during your time there, I mean, did you come across a lot of, um, how do I put this, interesting things going on in microcap? Because, you know, there's a few, I mean, one of, one of our, our good colleagues, I mean, he's got his, his career basically on, put on the map, Maj Suedan, and in uncovering some of, of these, you know, uh, uh, I think they're U.S. listed uh, Chinese companies that were basic, that were all frauds. Um, so, I mean, while you were there, I mean, were you exposed to any of sort of any of this kind of stuff or what was that experience like if, if, it, if that was the case? Yeah. So, uh, Maja, Geo Investing and, um, also Muddy Waters, Carson Block, uh, did some really great work on a lot of the smaller, uh, U.S. listed Chinese companies that were ended up being exposed as frauds. Um, you know, one of the interesting dynamics there is that for a publication like the Wall Street Journal, we're mostly focused on larger companies. So, um, you know, if it doesn't cross the billion dollar threshold in general, we're not super interested because, um, you know, the general wider readership is interested in the big companies and what's what's moving markets. So if it's something with Citigroup or Goldman Sachs, we're very focused. And uh, a lot of those situations involved, especially the early ones involved companies that were sub $100 million micro caps. Um, and so we didn't do a lot of reporting on, on those situations. Um, obviously later once, um, you know, they built up a track record of exposing several of them. They definitely became, uh, newsworthy. Um, and there were a few larger ones like Sinoforest that did kind of hit the radar of the international media. Uh, but they did great work. And actually I did spend some time uh, a little bit later after, after business school going and visiting some of those. Uh, micro cap companies looking at them as potential investments. And one thing I will tell you is that, um, you know, you really need to, for these Chinese companies listed in the US, you really need to go and visit the operations of, of the firms because I found that when I started going and visiting a few of them, you know, outside of Beijing and outside of Shanghai, uh, the operations were, you know, nowhere near what they were claiming they could be uh, in their filings. So, um, the early work that you know, particularly Carson Block did and published, 
just uh, really impressive. Um, and, you know, I think he was very early in figuring, figuring that out. There was a whole ecosystem created to help those um, companies list in the U.S. And, um, you know, they would always come, come to the market with a name like China Paper or Sino Forest, you know, something that indicated, you know, a really high potential type company, uh, but they never had the assets to back them up. And so a great example of why you really need to be close to the companies and speak with management and really uh, visit them and understand what the operations are really like before you get involved with uh, any company, but particularly for microcaps. Absolutely. So then, you know, now going into your own personal investing journey, you know, after you had this experience, then you went through Columbia, you know, what were some of the, you know, your early microcap special situations that really helped shape your investing philosophy? And and if maybe thinking back on your time when you were in, in you know, at, at Wall Street Journal, how you might have come across some of these things as well. Sure. Well, I'll, I'll quickly run through three uh, examples and see uh, if you have any questions about them. But um, the first uh, one I wanted to, to mention um, was actually one I found during, um, during business school and uh, actually found it through a, a friend and classmate of mine, uh, Cristiano Amoruso. And um, uh, it's a company called Motorola Solutions, which is publicly traded today. Um, you know, Motorola is a is a tremendous, um, you know, part of the American technological ecosystem. And if you remember for a long time, uh, they had a mobile phone business and um, the Razor, I think is the one that everybody probably remembers uh, that was very hot for a while. And they also have a business, which is uh, Motorola Solutions today that did a lot of public safety infrastructure, which is all of the cell phone towers that, um, the government uses and uh, first responders use, they can't use the uh, same systems that we all use to do our cell phones because as we found out during 9-11, when everybody's trying to make a phone call, uh, if you rely on the uh, public, um, you know, the sort of commercial infrastructure, none of the first responder calls will actually get through. So really, um, really interesting business. And it was tied up with the money losing um, mobility business, which is the cell phone cell phone business. And so uh, Motorola split into two companies actually after Carl Icahn uh, pushed them to do so. And my friend Cristiano uh, found that idea and um, uh, worked with another classmate, Matt, Matt Robinson. And the three of us um, uh, worked on it together as first real special situations investment you know, that I followed and really dug into deeply. And um, we pitched that idea to Bill Ackman uh, as part of the Pershing Square Challenge competition at Columbia Business School and uh, ended up winning that competition, which uh, resulted in us uh, pocketing um, $25,000 for us and $25,000 that we uh, donated to charity as part of the competition. And uh, so as you can imagine, as students, uh, you know, that that infusion of capital is always a a, a nice, uh, nice bonus. Um, go ahead. No, hundred percent. I mean, but by the way, are you, are you still currently a shareholder in Motorola solutions? No, I, I'm not currently a shareholder. Um, although you can, if you go back and look at that track record, I probably should still be a shareholder, uh, in Motorola solutions. It's done, done very well since that spinoff. 
Absolutely. I mean, were there any other uh, special situations that you saw either during that time or even since that really helped guide your, your, the way in which now you're like, okay, this is what I know I like. This is, this is what I'm looking for in microcaps. Yeah. Uh, another, another one that I really, I'll give you two more that are more on the microcap side. That's a, that's a larger company. Um, uh, one of them is uh, Lee Enterprises, which is a local newspaper business that's um, based uh, in Iowa and has been involved with uh, Berkshire Hathaway uh, for a long time. Um, they actually bought the Berkshire Hathaway newspapers recently. Um, and I came across them in 2012, um, reading through a story in the Wall Street Journal. I kept uh, kept reading the, the newspaper I was affiliated with. And Lee Enterprises had uh, was going through a bankruptcy process at the time, and they had some debt outstanding that there was a new story in the paper that um, Berkshire had bought uh, a chunk of its debt from the trading desk at Goldman Sachs. And as part of a court-led restructuring, um, you could tell from the filings uh, that Berkshire, uh, because it owned the debt, um, was going to receive common shares as part of a part of the restructuring process. And so I thought to myself, okay, so Berkshire owns the debt, and now all of a sudden they're going to own common shares. And as everybody knows, the Berkshire Hathaway 13F filing is one of the most closely watched filings for what is what is Buffett doing now. And so I basically put two and two together and said, okay, so now I can understand that Berkshire is going to receive these shares. And all of a sudden, a company that has a market cap of sub $100 million is going to show up in Berkshire's 13F filing. Uh, and of course, industry I knew a little bit about, so I felt a little more comfortable being in it. And uh, so I bought some shares. And of course, when it was disclosed that all of a sudden Berkshire's newest holding was a sub $100 million newspaper company. Uh, the stock uh, did pretty well after that. So that was a really interesting situation um, that I got involved with and really um, sparked my interest in micro caps. And I continued following the company for, for many years uh, thereafter. Um, another situation that I came across in 2017, um, and by the way, I don't own any Lee Enterprises shares currently, um, another situation I came across in 2017 is a company called Surge Components, uh, which does electronic components, um, capacitors, semiconductors, switches, very basic uh, technology. Um, and that company had built up quite a big cash balance, it was a smaller company, I believe at the time, sub $20 million market cap. So even smaller than Lee Enterprises. And um, they had a large cash balance. And so that attracted a couple activist investors to get involved. And those activist investors started, you know, making demands on the management team. And as a response, the management team said, okay, we don't want you to take over the company. How can we find a way to get you out of the stock? And as part of that, they launched a tender offer uh, to buy all of the shares of the two activist investors, and at the same time also made a, an offer to, to, to the other shareholders and quite substantial tender offer. So they made an offer for 5 million shares when the company had 10 million shares outstanding. So basically a tender that was aimed at buying back half of the, uh, the company's stock, and they had more than that amount of cash on their balance sheet. 
So I figured it was a pretty, a pretty safe setup. Uh, there's nothing that quite gets a tender offer over the finish line than um, management needing their keep their jobs uh, by doing it. And so uh, the stock continued to trade at a discount during that whole process. And, you know, there was a opportunity to make a 15% return over a one month period. And, you know, that's a, that's a great IRR if you can, uh, if you can keep that up. So uh, just a couple of examples of situations that I found very interesting. And I also don't do not currently own any, any shares of search components. Absolutely. So, I mean, is that where you really specialize in is wanting to find some of these kind of unique, different situations that, you know, have some kind of catalytic event potentially coming uh, and, and to just kind of take advantage of that upside? Yes. And some of them can be short duration. I, I like ones that are both short duration and, and longer term um, holdings. But I, I certainly, especially in the micro cap space, you know, you generally want to be biased towards things that A, have a catalyst and B, the time horizon is pretty visible. Um, you know, there are cases and some investors have done very well with long-term compounders in the micro cap space. Um, but, you know, I find that in general, it's, it tends to be safer to go with those, um, situations that have a nearer term catalyst. Absolutely. I mean, do you, do you, are you one of those that also likes to talk to management at all? Do you take them into account? You know, what, what's your thoughts there? Yeah, I'm a huge fan of of talking with management. Um, I think it's really important just to at least try. Uh, then you get a sense of whether they are open to to speaking with with investors, um, and it gives you a a better sense of of really uh, what their ambitions are, what their incentives are. Um, so I, I would always encourage people to to at least try to talk to management, and at least that even that whether they respond to you gives you a data point. That you can use in your uh, your investing approach. I, I actually, to be honest, find it um, crazy that um, some investors would not even want to talk to management. I, I think that's a that's handicapping yourself in a way that me, as a former reporter, I think about that as almost being like um, a reporter who refuses to do interviews. Um, I mean, if you could imagine uh, somebody joining the Wall Street Journal and saying, "I'd like to cover this company." Uh, I'd like to cover Apple, but I'm not interested in ever talking with Tim Cook because I'm too worried that it might bias me towards liking the company too much. Um, so I think you want to consult all sources of information you can find. And it's part of your job as an investor to be able to know um, how to discount uh, people who might be overly promotional or overly bullish about their company. And as a result, you know, take into account what other people might say about the company as well and balance those out. Got him. So, or, you know, not to jump around here. I feel like we're jumping around a lot, but I, it's fine. We, we can keep jumping around. So, I mean, is uh, our, 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 our uh, US, U.S. listed Chinese companies just completely off the screen completely for you? Or do you at least look at them as potential? Oh, I might be a short. I don't know. Yeah, it's it's actually quite quite funny. I've, I've thought about the contradiction um, to myself as well uh, about whether um, you know, whether it's a shame that I don't actually invest in Chinese companies personally, I, I don't short, I don't short any companies, first of all. And, um, I don't spend a lot of time, um, thinking about investing in Chinese companies. I think about them a lot in terms of the businesses and their impacts on the global economy and on global industry and studying 
um, you know, studying how Chinese businesses are different than U.S. businesses, particularly the big tech companies. Um, so I look at look at those a lot and have a lot of experience interacting with them. But in general, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of reasons that you want kind of want to stay away from from those those U.S. listed companies. Um, one is that there's a lot of uh, insider information that tends to um, uh, tends to be accessible to different people in China that you might not have access to. So you're already at a disadvantage uh, on that front. And even being a well-connected uh, reporter uh, or ex-reporter, um, you, you're, you never quite get all of the um, all of the information that that other market participants might have. And there's really no um, enforcement on insider trading among uh, mainland Chinese-based individuals uh, in the U.S. market. So if you're a Chinese citizen that lives in China and you have a brokerage account that allows you to access U.S. stocks, um, uh, there's really no enforcement mechanism for the SEC to go after people who do that. And, and you will tend to see um, movement of of those uh, those stocks ahead of news events um, pretty regularly, um, so that's that's one big issue, and uh, that that causes me to be more cautious about investing in them. Uh, and then also, you know, for the best companies, they're the large companies uh, in in China, the Alibabas, the Tencents. Um, those are real businesses that are that are generally high quality um, and have very strong competitive advantages in the market. But I would say for a lot of the smaller companies, they generally tend to be um, faddish and uh, they often, if they list in the U.S. market, there's a reason, which is because they're not allowed to list in China and they don't fit uh, some of the criteria. So uh, the better companies in general will have a bias towards listing in Hong Kong or Shanghai uh, if they can. So you have to be really careful, especially when you get to the smaller companies um, the reasons why the Alibabas of the world are listed in the U.S. has to do with their size and liquidity and investor base historically. Um, and, you know, some of the newer companies that are listing, especially the tech companies like a Meituan um, or a Xiaomi, you know, they've chosen to list in Hong Kong uh, now that they're allowed to. So I'd be really cautious about any companies that are listing in um, in the U.S. that uh, today as an IPO or have recently listed in the U.S. Absolutely. And, and for full disclosure, are you a shareholder in any of the names that you just mentioned? I am not. Got it. So this is actually a good transition where, you know, we probably should have talked about this earlier when we were talking about your experience as, a, as an investor. But this is really what you're talking about now as, as a visiting lecturer at the U- University of Virginia. And that's, you know, um, uh, Basically, your thoughts on on China's investing, uh, investing in the, being part of the global uh, economy now, as well as China tech companies. So, love to hear some more of your thoughts there, where we're at. I mean, was, there was a ton of news in the latter half of 2021. You know, disappearance of Jack Ma, despite running Alibaba. You know, um, a lot of skepticism on um, some of these U.S. listed, larger U.S. listed Chinese companies, especially on the education side. They were worried about you know, uh, data mining and whatnot. So uh, obviously the TikTok and stuff. So we're love to hear your thoughts on where we're at currently when we're, when we're balancing all of this stuff together here in 2022. Sure. It's a, it's a fascinating um, dynamic right now. Um, thinking about the way private businesses interact with the government in China. Uh, as you probably are aware, there's a big political uh, Congress getting ready to happen in China that will um, give Xi Jinping 
his third term uh, as uh, chairman of the Communist Party and also um, effectively the, the um, head of state uh, for China. And in the lead up to that, we saw there was a huge um, crackdown on some of the Chinese tech firms, which become hugely powerful and influential in China. And as you mentioned, uh, Jack Ma, who's a you know incredible entrepreneur, um, you know he was kind of uh, he was critical of some government policies they had around regulating the tech sector, and that resulted in uh, Ant Financial, which is the financial services arm of, of Alibaba or affiliate uh, of Alibaba, uh, not being able to do their, their IPO, which would have been the, the largest IPO in the world um, at that point. And so, you know, this really, to me, highlights one of the challenges for investors who do spend a lot of time focused on China, which is that, you know, in the US, you have regulation as a concern for almost all businesses, including big tech. It's an issue that a lot of people are focused on right now in the U.S. A lot of legislation has been introduced um, to put uh, limitations on some of the big, big tech companies. And uh, for a company like, like an Alibaba or Tencent, um, it's not so much regulation that they're worried about. It's more politics that they're worried about. And this is for all businesses in China. Not speak, not speaking about any of those specifically, but it's a situation where. Uh, executives are always subordinate to the, you know, political leadership in the country in a way that you just don't do not find in the U.S. or in Europe. Um, you know, as I mentioned, you know, regulation is what most companies in the U.S. are focused on. It's not about whether you're friends with the leadership or whether the president likes you or doesn't like you. Um, and, you know, in general, that creates a risk factor that is really, really hard to quantify or value and has really uh, impacted those, those stocks and their, their investors quite dramatically over the past couple of years, uh, trying to understand really where the leadership and management of those companies stand uh, within the political, political system. So it, it creates a whole extra risk factor. And one of the things I always try to caution folks on is that you'll often see a lot of investors, especially some of the New York hedge funds, get very interested in a lot of the Chinese tech companies and the IPOs. And part of that is because they're growing so fast and they're such a, a huge market for their goods and services in China. Um, but part of that is there's a lot of volatility uh, associated with that, and that can create a lot of upside very quickly. But because of that political risk element, uh, the downside can come just as fast. Uh, and Oftentimes, you know, you rely on management's interpretation or what what uh, outside analysts think, and sentiment uh, among the political class can change very, very quickly in China and have a huge impact in a way that even their own executives might not fully appreciate uh, in advance. So it's really hard to even rely on the expectations of the management teams in order to make a good investment in a lot of those uh, fast-growing Chinese companies. Absolutely. But and and I think one of the, the critical question or the critical topic when we're thinking about, especially specifically to US-China relations. And I was listening to an interview, I think it was a Mike Pompeo interview, talking about how, you know, there is this big um uh, existential fear of, you know, you create a great good or product in the US and China just 
there you go. They go ahead. They see that it's successful there in the U.S. They copy all the IP. Boom. It's They launch it under some other name and it rockets in China and you have no protection. There's nothing there. So, I mean, is that will that issue ever get resolved? Is it in the process of getting resolved? And if so, I mean, because that's something that we really should think about in terms of American entrepreneurism and, and the idea of wanting to expand globally, but having a fear of, you know, what what repercussions it can potentially have if we do get, you know, uh, if you get some kind of critical mass in the U.S. Yeah, it's a it's a huge concern. Um, you know, how do you protect intellectual property across borders? I think that's an issue that has been around as long as people have been inventing new new businesses and new ideas. Certainly, if you look at the history of the U.S. in the 1800s, um, the amount of U.S. Uh, entrepreneurs who were basically stealing technology from England and, and European uh, manufacturers uh, is, is not that dissimilar. So um, if you look at history, you can see every kind of emerging economy uh, wants technology that has been developed in other other countries and does whatever they can uh, because of the profit motive to uh, to take advantage of that. Um, I would say it's it's a challenge for any U.S. business that's trying to go into China um, or has been trying to go into China, especially with joint venture partners. Continue continually, you see, especially in the automotive industry where there's a lot of joint venture partnerships. Uh, historically, uh, a lot of sort of technology that gets transferred um, to local local manufacturers. I would say that, you know, one of the things that's changed in the past couple of years is that a lot more um, companies are bifurcating as to whether they will want to sell just in the U.S. market versus uh, U.S. and China. Uh, there are actually quite, quite a few less companies that really want to uh, grow in the Chinese market today compared to, I would say, five years ago. So if you look at some of the big especially tech companies, which have become such a huge part of the economy. Um, a lot of the tech companies in the U.S. don't have access to the Chinese market because of the Great Firewall and China's censorship policies on the Internet. And so there's not as much of a situation where those companies are not able to uh, or at a disadvantage in the Chinese market because of people stealing their technology. It's more that they just don't have access to the market in general. So you'll find that a lot of the companies, you know, like a Facebook uh, or some of the AI companies, they do have concerns about it being uh, their technology being duplicated in in China. But uh, in general, it doesn't really hurt their sales because they weren't selling in the Chinese market anyways. And with the exception of of a few um, Chinese companies, they also struggle to tap the U.S. market, which is you know incredibly competitive and has already has a lot of that technology. So. Uh, in general, you see do see a, a digital divide happening between between the U.S. and China um, that that makes it so that you know the technology transfer is a real a real issue and a real problem, but it doesn't always show up on the bottom lines of of the companies. Absolutely. Okay, so close out our conversation on you know kind of where we're at in terms of uh, of China investing in China, understanding what just what's going on you know what can you give us your final take final thoughts you know maybe where things might be headed as you said she's about to probably get his third term you know what that means now for the global economic community as well well i'm hopeful that um there could be a little bit of a move towards more stability once he's consolidated 
power or the dynamics there get get settled. Um, there's always in the lead up to any election, there's a lot of posturing. Um, and even though it's not a public election in China, there is a process of uh, political negotiation that that goes on. So uh, my hope is that a number of the issues uh, might get toned down um, in, in the coming months. But I, I don't have any particular insight on that beyond just following the political political timetable that everybody else is is following who pays attention to China. So let's uh, let's hope for it. I mean, one of the things I will say in the bigger picture is that, you know, in the long run, the U.S. and China working together is something that is incredibly important for all of humanity, um, you know, regardless of whether we have different political views, um, the ability of China and the U.S. to work together on issues like climate change uh, is the only way those problems could ever get solved. If we if we can't find a way to work together on those um, and we can't find a way to have some kind of cooperation there, uh, that does not spell well for the, the next generation and, you know, um, and how our world will shape up. So I have to be hopeful on some level that we can find some ways to cooperate and um, try to resolve some of those some of those bigger issues. I'm with you there. You know, we what else can we do? We have to be hopeful. Um, so another question I have for you, and this this harkens to your experience as a reporter. But, you know, what what would you say? And you've alluded to this already when you talked about talking with management, how I, I mean, I'm right there with you. Like if you're going to be a microcap investor, you should, you know, at least care about what my what management says, you know, whether it's listening to an interview at a minimum. And I'm not saying that just be self-serving, but, you know, at a minimum, listening to an interview going as far as doing a one-on-one is even better. But what else would you say reporters and investors have in common? Or what, what can investors learn from reporters and to help them in their invested careers? Sure. I think it's a, it's a great question and something I thought about a bit, uh, particularly, you know, the kind of skill sets that you develop in both of the fields. I've, I've met people who've been successful in both and worked with them closely. Um, I think the one thing that both good investors and good reporters have in common is they're both uh, deeply curious people um, and not always focused on just finding the quickest way to get the information that they want, but are willing to spend time uh, going down rabbit holes and looking, I know for reporters, it's interviewing people who may know what they're talking about and may not know what they're talking about um, to learn about, about companies and, and testing out theories uh, with, with different people that you, that you speak with. Um, you know, good investors, you know, it's about digging, going through the, uh, going through the filings in depth, reading industry research, reading publications that talk about, uh, the trade, uh, for different, different industries. Um, so, you know, learning about new businesses and just being curious about things and not feel like you have to know everything when you start, you know, being willing to ask questions and, um, be the dumb, dumb person that, that wants to learn from learn from other people, putting yourself in a student mindset, I think is really, really important, um, especially if you want to be a generalist as an investor um, and reporters, you need, you're never just going to cover one company. You need to, you need to cover multiple companies to, to have a beat. So um, that's one thing I think is really important. Curiosity. Another skill skill set that I find great reporters and great investors share is the ability to develop what I call professional friends. And professional friends are people who, not people that you that you pay to be your friend. Um, they're people that 
um, that, that you interact with who share professional interests that you have. And uh, these are people who might be experts in different industries, people that you think are smart, that you read an article by or read a, a think piece or maybe even a, a podcast host who has talked with a lot of really smart people and uh, a lot of really uh, interesting management teams. Um, so I always, you know, I'm a big believer in uh, people not being afraid to reach out to people who you haven't already met or not relying on, you know, a introduction uh, in person, you know, just go out and try to meet people who might be smart about something that you're interested in and don't be shy. You know, one of the things I find my students suffer from this too, um, where they go, well, I want to learn about this company or I'm interested in working for this company. Um, you know, but how do I talk to somebody? I go, well, go on LinkedIn, look for somebody who works there. Go on Twitter, look for somebody talking about it. You know, for investors, type in the, the cash tag, you know, the dollar sign ticker symbol and look for who's talking about that company and then send them a message. Um, you know, look for who's ever, whoever talks publicly in an article about a company. So I think really developing and being willing to go out and talk to new people um, and developing a set of professional friends is, is really, really valuable. Um, for both investors and and reporters. Um, a th kind of third thing I'll just say that uh, I think is really, really valuable before I pause on this is how important it is to uh, go to multiple sources. So, you know, we mentioned earlier about talking with management. Um, you know, when I at the Wall Street Journal would write a story about an M&A deal or something that was not a public filing or a press release, um, in order to be able to get that story past your editors, or when I was an editor, the reporters getting it past me, um, you would almost always need to have multiple sources saying the same thing uh, about a situation. And I find that a lot of investors, uh, especially uh, ones who are maybe not as experienced or um, maybe a little bit more likely to follow a hot tip, um, will rely on either a conversation with management or one investor's opinion about a company or a stock. And one of the things I think reporters learn very early on that I think investors could benefit from is just uh, knowing that you have to cross-check uh, all of the information that you get with multiple people who see the issue from different perspectives. Um, it's the quickest way for a reporter to get in big trouble is to write one person's opinion or vantage point on a situation and think that's the truth. Uh, you really have to look at, at different people's perspectives and in investing, that means, you know, talking to uh, the company management, but also their competitors, uh, also talking to their customers, uh, their suppliers, um, other investors who are in the company, people who might be short sellers, um, uh, trading, you know, uh, shorting the company stock. So, really benefits you to have a, a, a wide array of sources and, and try to get multiple sources before you make an investment decision. You know, Rick, you, you know, you make it seem like microcap investing is a lot of work. So why, why should, why should folks invest in microcaps in your opinion? Yeah, well, it is a lot of work and uh, doing it well is even more work. Um, so, sure. you know, the one thing I will say, and, and one piece of advice I always give people who are, um, thinking about investing. And I think this, I think your, your podcast is a little bit more targeted towards 
professional investors and people who are uh, experienced. Um, and but I would say for people who might might be less experienced, um, you know, my my personal opinion is that uh, microcap investing is not right for everybody. And I think the vast majority of people are best served by low cost index funds. Um, you know, the S and P five hundred. You know, Vanguard fund. You know, those type of funds um, are are in general um, uh, quite probably the best for people who don't have the time to to invest in um, in looking at their portfolio. Uh, I will say that I am not a uh, shareholder in the uh, S and P five hundred uh, index fund um, because I do want to spend the time doing it, and I and I think that um, there is a reward to spending the time. So. Uh, in terms of why, why do I invest in um, in microcaps? Um, you know, I, there's a lot of sort of dynamics that um, you can learn about uh, that exists in the market that make it a special special place. One is generally there's less analyst coverage uh, of the companies that are microcaps, so you don't you don't have a lot of uh, investors looking at it. You don't have a lot of invested bankers working to promote the companies. Um, so that's an advantage. Um, they generally tend to be simple businesses. So that's one thing I really like is that most microcap companies tend to do one, one type of business. Uh, they don't have multiple subsidiaries that do different things. So it helps you to be able to analyze the company and what their future prospects are uh, if you can just look at one, one business line and one market opportunity. Um, obviously, being small uh, helps to uh, give those companies greater growth potential. So, you know, no tree grows to the sky. Uh, and um, it's really important uh, that for larger companies that you recognize that you're not going to be able to achieve huge growth rates. But if you look at some of the micro caps, and I've seen this in several situations I've looked at over the years where, you know, a single contract could double a company's revenue. Uh, and so, if you follow closely and you read the filings and you uh, learn about what the prospects are, some of the companies can grow quite dramatically given that they're generally at a, at a very small size of sales. Um, and then I'll also add that uh, illiquidity is a, a, something that I see as a, a huge advantage for small investors. Um, you know, when I talk with a lot of my classmates from Columbia Business School about some of the situations I found, you get the initial reaction, which is, wow, that's incredibly cheap. And that's uh, looks like a great investment opportunity. And then you say, well, what's how much does it trade every day is the question like, you get. And then you say, well, it trades about $50,000 worth of shares a day, uh, or maybe even less than that. Um, they go, well, there's no way I could ever pitch that to my portfolio manager or to my fund um, because it's just so illiquid. Um, that they would never even look at it because they need have certain requirements they need to get out of it. Um, there's also a number of uh, funds and you know larger smart investors that are not allowed to trade over the counter stocks, which is a big part of the microcap universe. Um, so all of those help to keep away the kind of some of the best fisher fishermen uh, from you know this uh, this part of the pond. And so um, if you can sift through a lot of the more promotional, management teams and find the 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 good the good ones uh the diamond in the rough so to speak there can be big rewards for for doing that so those are some of the reasons why i i you know i like looking at micro caps and um it's also fun to be able to 
to really roll up your sleeves and figure out how a business works that's um, that's smaller. And you know, the management might might welcome you to come and visit the business or have an hour long conversation with the CEO. It's not something you can always get as an individual investor with a uh, multi billion dollar market cap company. I, listen, I I pretty much agree with everything that you just said. <laughs> you know why investing in micro, and like you said, even though it is hard, and especially if you want to be good, it's really hard. And you know, for for some, it's you know, look, we're doing our best here to try and make that process as easy as it can possibly can be. You know, with just providing as much information, so you don't have to do as much digging as you normally would. But even then, you do need to make sure that you're covering all your bases, you're talking with people, you're doing your channel checks. And, you know, ultimately, you know, hopefully that hard work will pay off. It might not pay off. It might not pay off on those first couple, but ultimately, you know, you put in the time and the effort and, um, you know, you will hopefully reap the rewards of all that, all that good hard work. But, um, and what about, what about, see, this is why I love doing this podcast because what, what an incredible background going to China to, working with the Wall Street Journal, Columbia Business School, and now microcaps, you know? So um, I, I think we pretty much covered it all. I mean, is there any last, anything that you want to close out with in terms of advice or anything maybe that some of your students who might be listening to this, you want them to understand about investing, China, global economies, any of that? Yeah, well, uh, just a couple of things that I always uh, talk with my students about in terms of building their careers, Um you know, I always mention to, to students that uh, mentorship is just a really important thing. I think it's always benefited me in my career, but I think it benefits everybody to, um, to look for mentors in, um, in your life. Uh, the firms you work for, make sure you find, find people that you can learn from and be willing to reach out to them. Uh, people who are you know, older than you and have more experience and learn from what they've done. It might not always apply to every situation that you're in, what they went through, but um, I think it's always worth listening to and, and understanding uh, different paths you can take and different paths other people other people have taken. Um, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the concept of building a network uh, of professional friends, people that you uh, don't just want to socialize with, um, people that you actually want to talk with about what's going on in the world, what's going on maybe in U.S.-China relations, but also maybe in the technology industry or the consumer goods industry. Um, people you think have written a really interesting article about something, um, not being afraid to reach out to them and and, and talk with them. Uh, and then lastly, just remaining remaining curious, uh, continuing to read. Um, you know, a lot of people get really focused on uh, working you know, on what they have to do, you know, once you stop being a student, um, you know, you generally get into a workplace and you're focused on a very narrow uh, slice of, of the world uh, that you're, that you're required to figure out and, and add value to, but making sure you find time to, to read books about things that are not related to, to what you're doing in your job um, and uh, continue to, to kind of just be, um, be curious about about the wider world. Um, I think it opens up a lot of a lot of opportunities and doors, and keeps you mentally uh, mentally fresh. Um, so those are all things that that I really uh, encourage encourage my students to do, especially right after they graduate. And um, I think those are all valuable lessons for for all of us, um, you know, including myself. 
Oh, I, I need to heed that advice in terms of reading. I feel like I can't even remember the last time I finished a book. I've, I think I've started like six. And so, <laughs> but um, I think with that, Rick, this was great, man. Where, where can everybody go and follow you and, you know, get some more information about your thoughts, your insights and, uh, you know, you plug away. Sure. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at, at Rick Carew, um, uh, R-I-C-K-C-A-R-E-W. Um, I don't post a, a lot these days, but um, uh, I'm, you know, open to people interested to reach reaching out. Um, and, uh, you know, you could also add me on on LinkedIn um, if you have a question or something that you want to discuss. So I'm always happy to try to help, uh, especially young people who are looking to learn more um, about U.S. China or about investing, um, you know, whenever whenever I have some expertise to offer. Sounds good. All right. Well, Rick, thanks again for joining me today. I really do appreciate it. Good luck. Stay safe and uh, look forward to meeting you in person at some point in the near near term. Well, thank you, Bobby, for having me and really appreciate everything you do um, with uh, Planet Microcap and organizing the conferences. And one of the things about the Microcap community that I've always found is really special is you don't, you know, have the same um, level of conceit and sort of ego that you often find in kind of the the bigger hedge fund world. Um, and also that people are really uh, dispersed geographically and the willingness of people like yourself to try to bring people together and share information, um, you know, beyond just uh, face-to-face interactions in New York uh, really adds a lot of value. So I uh, appreciate what you, what you do. And uh, thank you so much for, for having me on the podcast today. Dude, that was, thank you. I appreciate that. You you know what? You're welcome back on any time. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but uh, but in all serious, thanks again, man. And uh, we'll talk soon. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc. and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast podcast.